We've kind of been going through a lot of different uh, variety lately, which is good. I'm also glad to, Lord willing, get back into the consistency of going back um, through Galatians once again. So this morning we'll finish up chapter 4 and uh, get a little bit into chapter 5. Chapter 4, 21 through 5, 1 is the text the message will be based on this morning. Let's pray before we go to the Word. Father, we do not come to your word to be entertained or to hear speculations of men, uh, but we come to hear the word of Christ. And where else can we go? For he has the words of life. I ask that you shape the words I speak by your spirit so that they be truly the word preached to your people. Open the ears of your people uh, to all that is true and stop them up to anything that is untrue. Father, give us life and give us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So at this point in the pat in Galatians, Paul has kind of he's concluding his main arguments and he's getting into the quote unquote practical sections of or application sections of the letter. Um, and this last text in the, would kind of it would be a poor argument by itself, but as kind of the conclusion of a chain of arguments, it's a really a powerful exclamation point at the end. <coughs> um, and so in this passage, he's drawing a comparison between the freedom of a life of faith in Christ as opposed to the slavery of life under the law. So um, with that context in mind, let's stand and we'll read God's word together. Galatians 4:21 through 5:1 Tell me you who desire to be under the law do you not listen to the law for it is written that Abraham had two sons one by a slave woman and one by a free woman but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Amen. 
This, this is God's word. Uh, who is your mama? That's the question Paul wants to ask these people. In many ways, if we know who our mother is, we know who we are. Uh, I've been growing a lot of peppers in my garden. And there's a myth about peppers, a cross-pollination myth, that if a hot one cross-pollinates with a mild one or a sweet one, it'll make the sweet ones hot. Uh, that's a myth. So I have some purple bell peppers, Pinot Noir, they're called, and I have adjacent uh, habaneros. So if a bee po- pollinates the habanero and then goes over to the flower of the, the, the Pinot Noir, will the Pinot Noir produce a hot bell pepper? And no, that's a myth. If we want that, what we have to do is save the seeds from that cross-pollinated fruit, plant that, and then the the a uh, plant next year will produce the cross. So it's a myth that you can make a hot one in the same season. Um, peppers will never be anything other than what the mother plant is genetically programmed to produce. And so Paul wants to push these Galatians. Who is your mama? Who's your mother? You say you're a habanero, but you're starting to act like a Pinot Noir pepper. <laughs> Don't you know you are in Christ? That's really the point of all of Galatians. Is Don't you see who you are in Christ? I've seen what is for me a bit of a fresh uh, facet of salvation this week. I'm sure you've noticed it many years ago. But it's the facet where adoption and the new birth meet. Unlike regular human adoption, um, in divine adoption, we undergo a fundamental change. We are reborn into our new family, into our adopted family. That that was twisting my brain around this week. It's amazing. We're adopted, but we're also born. There's a fundamental change. We, We have some sort of a change in our supernatural genetic structure when we're reborn. And that's why Nicodemus is so confused. Can I enter my mother's womb a second time? This explains uh, Paul's ongoing persistence to define the identity of the Galatians in Christ. In this passage, he's saying, either you were supernaturally born as a son or daughter of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is free, or you were born of the earthly Jerusalem, which is in bondage. And he wants them to know they are children of freedom because they're they're trying to return to the bondage. They're trying to return to Egypt, if you will. They're trying to return to their old mother. This is a constant problem we have to face as Christians. Uh, Though we've been supernaturally born, the old man, the flesh, Adam in us, still lingers and we're constantly tempted to revert to our old ways, to go back to Egypt. We know better, too. Our, our old family we know is bondage. But there's something within us that keeps drawing us back, pulling us back. 
And the hope presented in this passage comes to us in the form that's really so common in Scripture, especially the epistles, is the form of the indicative and the imperative. What is true of you, and then therefore, what, what do you go and do? So, the indicative here is he, he preaches to us who we are in Christ, that in Him we're supernaturally born, children of promise, children of freedom, And then, based on that indicative, he exhorts us. He exhorts us in the beginning of chapter 5. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so, we'll uh, go through this passage in that pattern. First, three points on the indicative. Things that we can know about, truths about the world and about ourselves and about the word. And then the fourth point will be the exhortation. Um, So, the first point in the indicative which I've phrased in, a, in an exhortation to you, but is that we should know that the law preaches promise. We should know that the law preaches promise. From verses 21 through 23. God does not have dual personality disorder. Sometimes we treat him that way, especially when we're analyzing the differences between Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is law, the New Testament is promise and grace. And that's not the case with God. We've seen over and over again in this book that the purpose of the law has always been to serve the promise. The Judaizers, the false teachers in Galatia, mistakenly read the scriptures in a way that that makes the law and keeping the law a means by which we obtain peace with God, which was never the purpose of the law to begin with. That's a mistake we easily fall into. We think sometimes I think I think we think that the Old Testament saints were. Uh, their sins were atoned for by the sacrificial system or by keeping the Ten Commandments. And the New Testament Christians were the ones who were saved by Christ. But that is not the case at all. We are all saved. Every saint is saved by Christ. But Paul wants us to know that. that the law has always preached promise. He, he says in verse, verses 21 through 23, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, um, under the law doesn't mean that we have to obey the law. Everyone has, is under the law in that way, but under the law means making the law meritorious for salvation. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. God's interactions with Abraham were never about him doing the right thing. Judaism interprets the Old Testament in that way, that that Abraham is this righteous figure that we're supposed to look up to, that he pleased God, and that um, we're to emulate Abraham. But instead, what we see is God's faithfulness despite Abraham and Sarah's unfaithfulness. I don't know how they can arrive at that interpretation that Abraham was righteous. God promised them a son through Sarah. And, and what do they do? They concoct their own imaginative scheme. This is how we'll fulfill the promise. Take my slave woman, Hagar, and have a child with her. Uh, 
So they did. Abraham took Hagar and they had Ishmael. Ishmael, uh, was, was he the son of promise? Did they kind of solve the, the promise issue for God on his behalf? He says that Ishmael was born of flesh. He was born of the ingenuity of two impatient people. He was born because his father acted like his father before him, Adam. Ishmael was born the son of a slave woman according to the flesh. Now, word flesh there, I think it does mean naturally, but it also means sinfully. Now, despite the unfaithfulness and impatience of men, God always fulfills his promises. He did finally, in his timing, open miraculously the womb of ancient Sarah. Isaac was born truly according to the promise, just like God said. And it took years. I don't remember how long, like six years or something. You kind of understand, I would be kind of wondering, how can we fulfill God's promise for him at this point? But he does. He fulfills his promise. How could anyone think that the Old Testament is a mere book of laws and rules for people to keep? The whole point of the Old Testament is promise. Promise, really, that is ultimately about the Messiah and his people. And that's why our first indicative is know that the law preaches promise. The law preaches promise. That's what we're to know. We, like Abraham and Sarah, are so quick to read law into promise when we're meant to read promise in the law. God has promised us peace and joy and eternal communion with Him. He's promised us a land and wonderful things. And we do. We take it upon ourselves to accomplish His promises for Him. We must see that what He's doing in and through us is supernatural. So when you take up your Bibles to read, remind yourself before, you're, before you start, this book is not first about what I'm supposed to do, but what God has done, is doing, and will do. And of course, as, as we'll see as we finish the rest of Galatians, reading that Bible that way is the only way to accurately understand also what we're supposed to do. As the third question and answer says in the Shorter Catechism, that the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And the one flows out of the other. So know this, that the law preaches promise. Paul applies this paradigm to Christians. Uh, We, like Isaac, are supernaturally born just like he was we're supernaturally born we're children of promise and we're children of the free woman so the next point here of um, indicative is that you are sons of promise and know that know that you are sons of promise from verses 24 through 27 we've been watching through the star wars series as the family uh, if you're not familiar in Star Wars, but in the New Hope, which is like the very first one that ever came out in the 70s, was it 80s, 70s? Uh, there's this Death Star, which is this moon-like ship that can destroy planets with a laser beam. 
And so the, the rebels are going to try to destroy the Death Star, and they have to come down into this trench and get to the end and shoot a, a missile down this exhaust pipe that will start a chain reaction that will then blow up the whole Death Star. And so at one point, these X-Wing pilots are trying to get... They're, they're down in the trench, and one of the commander guys is saying, stay on target, stay on target. <laughs> and I, I feel a bit like Luke Skywalker in this passage because there's so many distractions, TIE fighters and surface-mounted anti-aircraft missiles. Um, there's so many good things in this passage that could distract us. And... Um, with wonderful distractions. There are so many technical, doctrinal, hermeneutical implications to this passage that we could easily spend a whole sermon gleaning from the side shoots of the passage. And maybe that would be profitable. Let me know if you would appreciate that. We can take a a week to do that. I know Michael's going to get into it in Sunday School too with this passage. Um, But I want us to, to stay on target here and that the main point in verses 24 through 27 is that you and I are like Isaac. We are supernaturally born, children of promise, children of freedom. Paul's setting up a contrast to communicate to the Galatians, what you are in Christ is so much better than what you would be if you followed the Judaizers. So he says in 24 through 26, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Uh, to the head-scratching consternation of Reformed exegetes everywhere, he, he applies this story allegorically. And as Michael has been faithful to teach us, the grammatical historical method of interpretation is so important for understanding the word. Now, if you have time, I recommend, it's really actually quite funny, reading Calvin's commentary on this verse, because he launches into this... Um, humorous kind of he rails on the historical misuse of allegory and rightly so um, just to provide one example of the way we can misuse allegory the classic David and Goliath you know David represents us and Goliath represents our problems and the stones represent verses that we can sling at our problems or something like that. That's a misuse of allegory. We can make up whatever we want. It, it ignores the history and the context of the time, the author's original intent, the redemptive historical scope of the Bible. We can make it say anything. And so it's important to note just a few things here is that on this passage, we can't build a whole allegorical interpretive method off one apostolic use of allegory, um, especially because Paul feels compelled to tell us it's allegory. If, if allegory was a natural interpretation, he wouldn't need to tell the readers he's employing allegory. Also, Paul has already established the principles of this text based on historical and, text, and contextual approaches to the scripture. Uh, he, he's established the free versus slave 
principle and the flesh versus promise principle. So what he's really doing here is drawing out an allegorical application to the text. And it is one which, while truly allegorical, is also typological in nature. That is, it brings out legitimate biblical arcs that run through the whole of Scripture. So there's a whole lot more we could say about about that. Um, But allegorically, then, the two women are two covenants and two cities. Hagar is Mount Sinai, or the Mosaic Covenant, and she represents the present Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, you know, the location of the temple. The Jewish leadership is the capital city of the Jewish religion. And they've rejected the Messiah. They cling to these ancient laws that were supposed to point to the Messiah. And they're making that the basis for their righteousness. And there's no freedom in present Jerusalem because there is no Christ. They've rejected Christ. Paul doesn't explicitly name the second covenant or Sarah by name, but the implication is clear. Sarah is uh, the only other covenant mentioned in Galatians, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. And we could also say from our, our historical vantage, we can say she is the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. She's the Jerusalem above. She's the heavenly city of which we're citizens. She's Zion, the dwelling place of God. She, Paul says, is the mother of believers. It's a wonderful thing to be the child of the heavenly Jerusalem. It seems so far off at times, the heavenly Jerusalem, but it's not a far off city. It's not something we can only hope for and enjoy and think about. But we are even now born of the heavenly city. John says that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, but of the will of man, or of the will of man, but of God. So on the one hand, the the kingdom of God, the holy nation, is represented here on earth in the church. On the other hand, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ reigns above where God is, seated at the right hand of God. And we are, in a sense, transported to commune with Him there by the Spirit. So we are here on earth, but only as strangers, aliens, exiles, sojourners. And our home, our motherland, is that heavenly city, Jerusalem. (laughs) Paul goes on and he quotes uh, from Scripture, Isaiah 54.1, if you want to turn over there, we'll look at at a little more of the context. Isaiah 54.1, and this further enforces this theme of the supernatural birth of the Jerusalem above. So his quote, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So the context here is Israel in exile, divorced from her husband, God, bearing no fruit, bearing no children. But God says in the following verses, after the one that was just quoted, he says, get ready, enlarge your tents. The, the, 
the people of God is go- are going to be enlarged. You're going to have more children. Now think for a moment about the Old Testament when Paul wrote. Uh, were there chapter divisions, verse divisions? What Paul knew was the scroll of Isaiah. Now what chapter comes before chapter 54? 53, the suffering servant. I just want to read a little bit of that. That is so powerful from verse 10 and 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, no chapter break. He continues, Rejoice, O barren one. It's a direct implication of what Christ has done. A wonderful commentary by Alec Motyer. I think I'm saying that right. On Isaiah, he, he comments on this beautifully. He says, In his saving work, the servant has done everything. Removing sin, establishing in righteousness, creating a family, The way is therefore open for response, pure and simple, to sing over what someone else has accomplished, to enjoy a feast for which someone else has paid. So you see what Paul's doing here. He's saying that the family of God is created supernaturally through promise and through the work of Christ. Sarah, the barren woman, received a family supernaturally. The barren woman who does not bear in Isaiah 54 is called to sing and to rejoice because she would bear more than she who was in a position to naturally bear children according to flesh. Not because she worked to obtain such a family, but because she reaps the benefits of Christ's propitiating sacrifice. And what a powerful testimony in the face of a theology that preaches a checklist salvation. Those theologies proliferate even today. And the reason they're so prolific is because they don't require an outside source. We manufacture checklist theologies in our hearts. Put a man from birth in the woods with no human contact. I guarantee his religion will be some kind of appeasement of the divine through works. That's manufactured right within our own hearts. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to think we're naturally compelling objects of God's affection. God did place his affection on us. Not because we're worthy objects, but because it's his nature to love. So the gospel is now what it's always been. That God saves sinners. He creates members of his family the same way he always has. He regenerates them. He gives them new life and faith to believe in the work of the suffering servant. 
We do not make ourselves members of God's family any more than we make ourselves members of our natural family. Know this, that if you are in God's family, it is because you are a supernaturally born son or daughter of promise, just like Isaac. Paul here, he leaves no room for compromise. There's no gray area here. Either we're a son of promise or we're a son of the flesh. So the third point here is know who will inherit the promise. The indicative is supernaturally born sons and daughters of God will inherit the promise. Uh, Brothers bicker naturally. I've had a pretty good relationship with my brother, but generally brothers bicker. And you can imagine the tension between Isaac and Ishmael and that family. Who would inherit from Abraham? Paul draws a parallel between that relationship and the Galatian church. The Judaizers questioned the inheritance of the uncircumcised. Are they even real sons of Abraham? And Paul doesn't waver here for a moment that the ones born of promise, the ones born of the Spirit, the supernatural sons of God like Isaac are the real sons and the real inheritors. He says in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You can imagine the Judaizers' face when they read this in the assembly. They're thinking, those people are not sons of Abraham, and, and Paul's telling them, you are sons of Isaac. I could just see them getting all flustered. Well, well just, well... Paul even goes so far here as to call their teaching persecution. Verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Um, This is a reference to Genesis to the story of Isaac's weaning party in uh, chapter 21. When Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a feast, and it says that Sarah saw Ishmael laughing. Ishmael would have been in his teens about that time. It's a fitting word, laughing. Uh, Isaac means laughter. Abraham laughed when he heard that he'd have a son. Sarah laughed. Now Ishmael is laughing. The Hebrew word there can mean friendly laughter or it can mean mockery. And the context would suggest it was the latter. Rabbinic tradition even has Ishmael questioning the inheritance of Isaac because Ishmael voluntarily submitted at the age of 13 to circumcision where Isaac didn't have a choice. He was circumcised on the eighth day. They also have a tradition in rabbinic tradition that suggests that the word for laughter here has even more violent implications. Uh, but whatever the case, whatever Isaac or Ishmael did, it made Sarah mad. She said, this kid, Ishmael's got to go. He's not going to inherit with my son. And of course, Abraham hesitated. He loved Ishmael's his son. God told Abraham, listen to Sarah. The promise and the inheritance is through Isaac. Verse 30 of our text, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the slave, son of the slave, slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
Paul's not holding back here. This is a harsh word against the Judaizers, but this clarity is needed in a muddled situation. The same principle holds true for us as well. It's one we can never budge on, ever. The principle is this, that people who do not have the true gospel are not born again, and they will not inherit the promises of God. They have no share in the inheritance of the children of God. They're to be even, he says, cast out, uh, particularly in the case of teachers who promote false gospels. They're to be removed from the family of God. They have no share with us. They persecute true sons. They afflict us with gospels that are rooted in flesh. Here's the third mention of this this morning. We were talking this week at breakfast about the American gospel film. It is an amazing exposition of the true gospel in contrast to the false gospels being preached in America, like Word of Faith and Prosperity Gospel. And what I so appreciate about the movie is that it follows this clear apostolic model of saying, here's the true gospel. Here's where this gospel doesn't line up. Cast out the slave woman and her son. Paul is so strong with these Judaizers, not because he thinks he's morally superior and better than they are, but because they're presenting their moral system as a means of being made right with God. And that's not the gospel. That's a gospel that cannot save. I have these conversations with people who love the history of the the Roman church, and it's a great example of a similar situation because... There is a lot of kinship. They can say the same, the Apostles' Creed, but at the end of the day, they have a gospel that cannot save. The whole point of the gospel is that we reap the benefits of Christ through faith. These false gospels are fleshly gospels that will birth fleshly children. They cannot produce children of promise. So who will inherit the promise? It's the sons of God, those born of the Spirit, born of promise, born of the word of life. So just quickly summarize the indicatives here is that the law preaches promise. We are sons of promise and we know who will inherit the promise. And really, the perfect summary of the indicative is in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Who's your mama? Are you a pino or a habanero? You're a child of promise, not of the flesh. You're a child of the earthly or heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. So we have to ask ourselves, are we trying to live according to the flesh? Are we trying to fulfill God's promises for ourselves? Or are we resting in the work of the suffering servant? Are we believing in the promises of God? Do we think that we're members of God's family because we're a good person, or because our family has a strong Christian heritage, or because we have a background of going to church? 
or is our claim to the family name of God based exclusively on the work of the one who poured out his soul to death, who was numbered with the transgressors, who bore the sin of many, and who makes intercession for transgressors? That's the gospel, and it is the gospel that divides flesh from promise, slavery from freedom, heavenly Jerusalem from earthly Jerusalem, and estrangement from inheritance. And finally, Paul's exhortation in verse 1 of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Really, this verse, I think, is more part of next week's sermon than this week's sermon. But I wanted to bring it out so that we could see the exhortation that grows from the the fertile soil of the gospel. If Christ has set us free, how foolish would it be to volunteer to go back into slavery, to go back to Egypt? Like the Israelites, they wanted to go back to Egypt after God redeemed them. They remembered with fondness, uh, to quote Keith Green, eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Who what breath were dining out in style? How could we want to go back into slavery? To a yoke nobody can bear. That's what I think Peter says in Acts 15. He calls on them. They're trying to decide if the the Gentiles should keep all these laws in Acts 15 and the uh, apostles and elders. And he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? Then he says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. So instead of going back to slavery, wouldn't it be better to flee to Christ whose yoke is easy and his burden is light? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Live in that, knowing that you are a child of the heavenly Jerusalem, son or daughter of God, heir of all the promises of God, purchased by you for you by the one and only suffering servant amen